Thank you for listening to the Abundant Life Sermon Podcast. Abundant Life is based out of Lee Summit, Missouri and has campuses throughout the Kansas City metro area and online. We want to see your life changed by Jesus. For more information about Abundant Life or for locations and service times, visit livingproof.co. Thanks for listening. Wherever you're gathering with us, we're glad that you've gathered to worship. We're studying verse by verse, line by line, the book of Daniel, this ancient prophet from the 5th century B.C. I'm convinced Saul things that God gave him even now in the 21st century. Daniel chapter 7, we're beginning a brand new section. This issue is a prophecy. The first six chapters we said is about history. The last six is about prophecy. Now, it's not that we didn't see any prophecy in the history, and we're certainly going to have to know a little history as we study prophecy. But what I love about the book of Daniel is he gives us so much intel from God about the time of the end and this time shortly before the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, as we begin the book of Daniel chapter 7, I want to remind you there are extra lessons I've shot in a video studio. One of them is going to be online tomorrow from Daniel 7, about half of our study of Daniel is done in this manner where we're not going to do it on Sunday morning. There's too much here to do. So I've done a lesson out of Daniel 7 entitled The Antichrist, and you'll be able to find it tomorrow online on our sermon page. Who is the Antichrist? Where does he come from? What is he? He's been the attention of generations, those who believe the Bible and those who don't. Hollywood has made movies about him. The History Channel does documentaries about him. People have written books about him, but you understand in Daniel 7, we get God's intel about this coming world leader, a political leader that is still yet to emerge on the world scene, and this Daniel chapter 7 gives us a lot of intel on him. Now, when I think about biblical prophecy, I think about a thousand-piece puzzle. Now, I don't know about you, but I never had the patience for this. Like, you know, there were gifts you'd get at Christmas from your grandma some of which you really loved and some you just acted like you really loved. Okay, this is one of those gifts for me, okay? I would get started and I'd get part way and then I would get bored and I didn't have the patience and I never got them done. Just being honest with you, all right? But I want you to know something. A thousand piece puzzle, listen, there's a picture there. You can't see it, but there's a picture there. And only as you take the time to find the pieces and how they fit together, do you ever get to see the picture. Now, while I didn't have the patience for a thousand-piece puzzle, I have given the last 20 years of my life to study the puzzle pieces of biblical prophecy. And just like this takes time for the picture to emerge, biblical prophecy, with all of its puzzle pieces, takes time for it to eventually emerge. You see, biblical prophecy is like a puzzle. In the next few weeks, we're going to be putting some of those puzzle pieces together. And God has given us the pieces, but we won't know how they all fit together until the time of the end. As a matter of fact, as Daniel is signing off his letter that we're now studying, the book of Daniel, it says in chapter 12 and verse 4, God said to him, but you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end, meaning a lot will was written in the book of Daniel could not be understood until the time of the end, which means generations of Christians study the book of Daniel and just scratch their head. They couldn't imagine how this could ever happen. 
But as we get closer and closer to the time of the end, the second coming of Jesus Christ, more of those puzzle pieces start coming together. And you start seeing how they fit together. Think about the prophecies that lay dormant for centuries that nobody could have imagined could ever actually happen. One of those major puzzle pieces actually came about 100 years ago. In the early 1900s, it had been prophesied by Ezekiel that because of Israel's sin and rebellion and that they crucified their Messiah, they'd be scattered abroad among other nations, driven out from the land of their forefathers. That happened in 135 AD as the Romans drove them out of the land of Israel and legally made it so they could not return to the land of Israel. Prophecy fulfilled, 135 AD. But not only did Ezekiel prophesy they'd be driven from the land, he also prophesied that one day God would bring them back again. And for centuries they were scattered abroad among other people. But at the end of World War I, the British defeated the Ottoman Turks in a battle, not coincidentally, in a valley called Armageddon. And suddenly, the land of the Israelites and the land of their forefathers no longer was a colony of the Ottoman Empire. It fell under British control. And Lord Balfour, as the Secretary of Foreign Ministry, signed a petition and signed a letter called the Balfour Declaration, allowing for the first time in centuries the Jews to begin returning to the land of Israel. Prophecy fulfilled, 1917. But you understand, Jesus still could not come because they were still not a nation. It had been prophesied that they would be reborn miraculously as a nation. No one could ever have fathomed or imagined how that might happen, but that's exactly what happened. In 1948, Israel's reborn as a nation. Prophecy fulfilled. But Jesus still could not come. There was one last prophetic sign that had to happen from the mouth of Jesus himself, Luke 21, 24. Jerusalem be trampled underfoot by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled, even though they'd become a nation. They still didn't have control of Jerusalem. But at the end of the Six Days War, 1967, the Jews rolled back into the ancient holy city of Jerusalem for the first time in centuries. They take back control of the city of Jerusalem, a super sign from the mouth of Jesus himself that the times of the Gentiles are coming to an end and we are living on the threshold of the second coming of Christ, prophecy fulfilled, 1967. Over and over again, we see the pieces of the puzzle coming together. And I'm convinced we're living at such a time, on the threshold of time as we know it. I'm convinced personally the last two years has continued to set the stage on the world platform, the puzzle pieces, and it's being positioned for the climax of the ages, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we get closer to the time of the end, this book that we're studying that was once sealed is being opened up where all of a sudden we can start to see how all of this eventually will be fulfilled. Now, in Daniel chapter 7, I'm going to tell you what we're going to learn, all right? I'm going to tell you ahead of time what we're about to read. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel receives a prophecy related to four world kingdoms that will rise and fall. Now, as Daniel gave this in the 5th century B.C., it was all yet future, but now we have the advantage of looking back through the lens of history, and we can see how his prophecies were fulfilled literally historically, four world empires that will rise and fall. Now, we're going to see the same four empires that were prophesied in Daniel chapter 2 from Nebuchadnezzar's dream. That was from man's perspective and how man sees the kingdoms of this world. But in Daniel 
Daniel 7, we're going to see those same kingdoms, not as man sees them, but rather how God sees them. What we're also going to see in Daniel chapter 7 is that the fourth empire, this fourth kingdom, will re-emerge or be reborn in the last days, shortly before the return of the king of heaven, that's Jesus, to establish a kingdom on the earth of everlasting dominion. Now, friends, this is the theme of the Bible. Sometimes people go, what's the theme of the Bible? What's the love of God? Yes, that's a theme. Or, 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 or it's the redemption of men, and yes, that's a theme. Or it, it's the glory of God. Yes, that is a theme. But what is a theme that connects all other themes? Genesis to Revelation it is the kingdom of heaven. That God has a plan for man. God has a plan for the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve to one day establish a kingdom on the earth that will be without end. From the moment God created Adam, put him in a garden, and said, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, God's plan for man has been to establish a kingdom that will be without end. And what sin has delayed, sin has not denied. God will have that kingdom. Now, we know we live in this parenthesis of time in the middle of this battle for a throne. It's a war for the world because we know there was once a holy cherub known as Lucifer that looked up into heaven, Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 12. He said, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the sides of the north. And as Satan tempted Adam to sin, and Adam's sin, dominion of the earth was transferred back to Satan so that now we live in this parenthesis of time where it says in 1 John five nineteen, the entire world lies under the power of of the wicked one. Currently, the kingdoms of this world are under Satan's dominion, but there is coming a day that the true and living king of heaven will return again and establish a kingdom that will be without end. See, Jesus went to the cross. Go ahead. You can give Jesus the glory. I'll stop for a minute, okay? I'll stop talking long enough for us to give him the glory he deserves. All right. See, a lot of people think, well, Jesus went to the cross just so little old me could go to heaven. Yeah, you're special, and he would have died for you if it was only you. All right, but there's a lot more going on. Just a little old you could go to heaven. See, the cross is about a crown. It's not just so you go to heaven. The cross is about establishing a kingdom. He broke the curse of sin. He got back what Adam lost in the garden. And one day he's coming again to establish that kingdom that will be without end. That's the theme of the book of Daniel Kingdoms rise and fall, but only one kingdom will last forever. Matthew 6 and verse 9. Remember, this is the Lord's Prayer. This is how Jesus said to pray. Our Father, who are in heaven, hallowed or holy be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There is coming a day that the kingdom of heaven will become one and the same with the kingdoms of this world. And we can finally say it's the fulfillment of the Lord's Prayer. The king of heaven will come and usher in a kingdom on the earth that will be without end. You see this over and over again. 1 Corinthians 15, 24. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, and he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. Listen, we are seeing what happens when sinful men reign over the world's kingdoms. The kingdoms of men are kingdoms of sin. But there is coming a day that the last Adam, 1 Corinthians 15, 45, the Lord Jesus will reverse the curse of the first. And in the end, he establishes a kingdom. He puts down all wicked authority and power and dominion. He says, Father, mission accomplished. 
And what Adam failed to do, the Lord Jesus will finish. Now, we saw this back in Daniel chapter 2. This was in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and Daniel interprets that dream as four world empires. And this is kind of a picture of what Nebuchadnezzar saw, this image of a man with a hit of gold. That was the Babylonian Empire. Chest and arms of silver, that was the Medio persian Empire. A belly and thighs of brass, that was the Grecian Empire. And then legs of iron for Rome's iron legions, that was the Roman Empire. Now what you see are these four kingdoms from the vantage point of man. Notice this man, he is noble. This is a thing that is beautiful. It's made of materials that are valuable. But now we're going to see in Daniel 7 what God sees, which is different than what man sees. When God looks at the kingdoms of this world, it is anything but noble and beautiful. As a matter of fact, what he sees are things that are brutal and bloody and ugly. As a matter of fact, what we're going to see, as God describes these very same kingdoms, he describes them as monstrosities. He describes them as beasts that are brutal and bloody and ugly. And we're going to see four beasts in chapter 7 that symbolize four world kingdoms that will rise and fall. I'm telling you, this is not hard to understand. The Bible is not a hard book to understand. It's just sometimes beastly hard to believe. I'm doing my best up here, guys. Give me a charity, charity laugh or something, okay? I'm doing the best. It's the best I got, all right? Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, what will you see here be? These are monstrosities, these kingdoms. Not noble, not beautiful. They're brutal. They're bloody. They're ugly. That is the history of fallen humanity. And we're going to see each of these four beasts represent Babylon, the Medio persian Empire, the Grecian Empire, and then the Roman Empire, if you're ready to study the Word of God together, say, Phil, you're a beast. All right, that is a compliment for men. It's not for women. Guys, don't call your wife a beast, okay? All right, that's just kind of the language of men. All right, here we go, here we go. Daniel 7, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. And then he wrote down the dream telling the main facts. Daniel spoke saying, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Now the great sea was the Mediterranean sea, but it's also symbolic. We know from Revelation 17, the great sea speaks of a sea of people, a sea of humanity. And from the sea of humanity come four great beasts, each different from the other. The first was like a lion, had eagle's wings, and I watched till its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. Now, it's not a mystery what this beast is. This is a winged lion. And it's not coincidental that if you lived in the ancient world and you thought of the Babylonian kingdom, you would picture a winged lion. It was all over their statuary. They actually had a gate coming into the city. It was called the Lion's Gate of a winged lion. This was in their temples. You can go there today. Archaeological ruins have discovered winged lions. It was a symbol of Babylon. In the same way, a bald eagle is a symbol of our nation. This was the symbol of this Babylonian kingdom. And just like Daniel sees, he sees the 
wings plucked off. You remember Daniel chapter 4. God strikes Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, with insanity. He lives for seven years like a beast, as an oxen or cow. And after seven years, just like it said, God raised him back up on two feet, gave him back the heart of a man, restored his throne. We can see clearly this is Babylon. But after Babylon came the Medo-Persian Empire. Verse 5, and suddenly another beast... A second like a bear. Now I want you to notice this is like a bear. Daniel is using the limits of his language to describe things for which there is no language. He says he sees something like a bear. It was raised up on one side, had three ribs in his mouth between his teeth, and they said, thus to it, arise, devour much flesh. So in some way, this is what Daniel sees. It's a bear and he's raised up on one side. These pictures just don't do it justice, but it's the best we can come up with. I mean, this bear looks like he needs to go to the chiropractor, okay? He's raised up on one side. Now, here's the point. We know historically what happens. The Medes and the Persians come together in a coalition, but very quickly that kingdom raises up on one side, and the Persians would quickly then dominate the Medes, which is why today it's only remembered as the Persian Empire, the Persians would raise up as the dominant part of that coalition. Notice he has three ribs in his mouth. I don't know if you can see it, but Daniel says this bear has three ribs in its mouth. Clearly, this bear's been to Arthur Bryant's. If you don't live in the Kansas City area, Kansas City's known for its barbecue, and we have real opinions. If you come to Kansas City, go to Arthur Bryant's. It's one of the OGs, but the best barbecue in town is Gates. And all the people of God said... Now, Jack Sack gets a nod. you got to try Jack Sack, too. Listen, okay. But he obviously had the three-rib platter, yes? Okay, here, here's what I want you to see. Again, looking back through the lens of history, as I've said, the best way to interpret Bible prophecy is once it's happened. This has happened. We know how the Medio persian Empire came to power. They conquered three kingdoms. This would speak of the three ribs in this bear's mouth. They conquered not just Babylon, but the kingdom of Lydia, that's in modern-day Turkey, as well as Egypt. And so they conquered three kingdoms as they rose to power, speaking then of those three ribs. But behind them came the Grecian Empire, verse 6. And after this I looked, and there was another like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. I want you to notice, with each empire, each of these beasts get uglier and increasingly more of a monstrosity. See, human civilization is not evolving up, it's devolving down. You have something here now that looks like a leopard. Now, it has four wings on its back because it conquers with speed. See, the bear devours with brute strength, and the Persians conquered their enemies with brute strength. They had the largest army ever at this time in history. They would go to battle with some two or 300,000 men. But this animal is different. This beast is different. You have a leopard here with four wings. Alexander the Great left Greece with a very small army of 35,000 men. But he invented something we call the Blitzkrieg, 
which is hitting your enemy with speed and agility because he could move so quickly, he could quickly overtake his enemies, outmaneuver them in battle. Consequently, you have a leopard here that doesn't run, it flies. And notice it has four heads. It's a four-headed kingdom. It's a four-headed leopard. And we know why, because around 32 or 33 years of age, Alexander the Great had conquered the entire world, but he could not conquer himself. We know that he dies in a drunken stupor in this very city we've been studying known as Babylon, and then his four generals went to war with each other to see who would get the kingdom. After about 20 years of civil war, these four generals simply divided up the kingdom four ways so that then it was a four-headed monster. You have Cassander, Lysimachus, Seleucus, and Ptolemy, and this would basically draw the world order or the world map for the next 150 or so years until the fourth beast would emerge known as Rome. Verse 7. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth, which speaks of Rome's iron legions. And it was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the other beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Now what was different about Rome and the Roman Empire? Listen very carefully. Rome and the Roman Empire was never conquered. Unlike the others, it simply crumbled. Meaning there was no other empire that conquered it and then set themselves up as the next empire. You have Rome that simply fragmented, it divided, and finally it crumbled. The implication is it's never fully been non-existent. It simply exists today in another form, eventually to be reborn. Notice this beast has 10 horns. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. This little horn is the one I teach in this other lesson, this extra edition out of Daniel chapter 7. He's the one known as the Antichrist, a future world leader, a political leader. I want you to see that this is a terrifying creature Daniel sees. I mean, this is a monstrosity. And again, this is an artist's rendering. This is not a photograph. They didn't have cameras back then. But in some way, this is what Daniel sees in his dream. It's got a crown of ten horns. Now look at what it says. It says in verse 15, I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. Yeah, you bet it did. He went to bed and had a nightmare. I mean, this is a terrifying dream, a nightmare. I mean, this is a horror flick. Have you ever had a bad dream, a nightmare, and then you woke up, and for a few moments you thought it was real, and then the realization it was just a dream floods over you with this relief. Oh, it was just a dream. Yeah, well, Daniel wakes up and realizes it wasn't just a dream. This is real. God's trying to show me something, and we know God showed him something because we can look back through the lens of history, and now we can see it happened literally. And he is really troubled with what God has shown him and what he has seen. So he says, I came near to one of those who stood by me, an angel, messenger, and asked him the truth of all of this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. We don't have to guess or wonder what all of this means. 
It says, those great beasts, which are four, are four kings which arise out of the earth. And looking back now through the lens of history, we know this prophecy related to these four world kingdoms, symbolized by these four beasts. It says, then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast. This fourth beast has really got his attention which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces and trampled the residue with its feet and the ten horns that were on its head. And the other horn which came up before which three fell, namely the horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. Verse 23, thus he said, here it is, here's the interpretation. The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which shall be different from all the other kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, trample it, and break it in pieces. The ten horns are ten kings that shall arise from this kingdom. Now all of a sudden, this is yet future. Rome came and went historically, but now he's describing something yet future, a futuristic kingdom represented by these ten horns. Uh, These ten horns are ten kings that shall arise from this kingdom, and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the first ones and shall subdue three kings. I want you to see the ten horns on the fourth beast represent a reborn Roman Empire at the time of the end with an alliance of ten nations led by the little horn, the Antichrist. Now some of you are going, Phil, wow. Like, I am just barely started following Jesus. I've just really started going to church, and I haven't really started studying the Bible. And this is like, you know, 401. Can you just start me in the 101 class, whatever that is, and just went right over the top of my head. Okay, let me just make this real simple. I've given you a lot of information. Now let me give you the application. If you don't understand anything else I said, understand this. You need to decide today, who is your king and which kingdom will you serve? For every person here, you need to decide what we're learning just on a practical level. Nations come and go, kingdoms rise and fall, and even now you are one of two kingdoms. There's only two kings and two kingdoms. There is the kingdoms of men. There are the kingdoms of sin, the kingdoms of this world that's dominated by Satan, or there's the kingdom of our God. And the number one thing we all have to answer before we leave today and put our head on our pillow one more time tonight is you know who your king is, which king will you serve, and which kingdom will you be a member? There's the kingdoms of this world, and there's the kingdoms of our God, and it's the only one that will last forever. And church, listen, when you look at what is going on in our civilization of supposedly a once Christian nation that has devolved into a thing of brutality that is bloody, that is brutal. You can begin to see why God calls the kingdoms of men a monstrosity. Because when you are not under the law of God, you are under another master whose name is Satan. I don't know about you, but I just wanted to weep this week. I mean, I had no words. What is happening? I'll tell you what is happening. There is another king besides the King Jesus that we serve. 
And when you look at the state of our world, and the eyes are focused on a war in the Ukraine, but then we look inwardly, and there seems to be a war at home, I want you to understand, ultimately, with your spiritual eyes, not just your physical eyes, but rather your spiritual eyes, what is going on behind the scenes. And when you look at what looks like hopelessness is everywhere, and hopelessness and despair, do you know what it says in Revelation 5 and verse 5, one of my favorite Bible verses is Revelation 5 and verse 5. Did you know that there are tears in heaven, just like there are tears on the earth. It says there is weeping in heaven. There's the seven-sealed scroll that is so important in heaven that apparently it somehow affects the affairs of men on the earth, and somebody has to open that scroll. But it says in Revelation 5 that no one is qualified, not in heaven or upon the earth, to open that scroll. And even those in heaven are weeping because it seems hopeless and despair is in the air. But then one says, do not weep, Revelation 5 and verse 5, the whole the lion of the tribe of Judah hath prevailed to open the seven-sealed scroll. And that seven-sealed scroll is nothing less than the title deed to the earth. And there's coming a day that Jesus, yes, he came the first time as the Lamb of God, but he's coming the second time as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. No, he's not coming to suffer. He is coming to conquer. He's not coming for a cross. He's coming with a crown. And he's coming back one day soon with a seven-sealed scroll, title deed in hand. And he's going to look at a counterfeit king and say, get off my land. I am redeeming all of creation from the curse of Adam's sin. And that is why you don't have to weep. You don't have to be without hope. We live in this little parenthesis called time. Sin has delayed the plan of God. It has not destroyed the plan of God. God is going to have his kingdom. The only question that really matters is who will be your king and which kingdom will you serve? The kingdoms of this world will one day decay, rust, and fade away. But only the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ will last forever. Only the kingdom of King Jesus will last forever, which means if you're not living for your King Jesus, you are living a life that will not matter because you've given your life to things that don't last forever. I want you to see what it says in verse 17. Those great beasts, which are four, are four kings, which arise out of the earth. But, I've said before, some of the most important word in the Bible is but. There's a good but here. But the saints of the Most High, that's you and I, the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever, and ever, and might I add ever, ever, and ever, and ever, and ever, and ever, and ever, and ever. Don't we behold the lion of the tribe of Judah hath prevailed. He died for our sin to reverse the curse of Adam's sin for all men and all women. And three days later, he broke the curse of sin for everyone forever. For he rose from the dead. He is the resurrected Redeemer, Lord God and Savior. There is an answer. To man's deepest human problem, there is a solution. It is the crucifixion and the resurrection, which means, church, our first allegiance must be to the kingdom of God and the multi-ethnic family of God. 
Revelation 7, John sees of every tongue, tribe, people, and nation around the throne of God. Our first allegiance. Now, I'm telling you this because as Americans, we all have divided allegiances. We all have divided loyalties. Of all your allegiances and all your loyalties, your first priority, your first allegiance must be to the kingdom of God and the multi-ethnic family of God. This is how Jesus put it in Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. See, we are members of a fallen kingdom. We are American citizens. Yes, I think it happens to be the greatest nation ever in the history of humanity where we get to enjoy more freedom and more liberty than ever known before. But you understand, it's just another fallen kingdom. It is the kingdom of men. That is why we must seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So are you seeking first the kingdom of God? See, the kingdom of God means the rule of God. Kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God, they're not the same thing. Let me explain. A lot of people use them synonymously, but when you study out those two phrases, they mean something differently. The kingdom of heaven is physical. There's coming a day that the king of heaven will come to earth. It'll be a literal physical kingdom as the kingdom of heaven comes to the kingdoms of this world, one in the same. But right now, the king of heaven is there, which means the kingdom of God exists in our hearts. It's the rule of God in my life. So let me ask you, are you seeking first the kingdom of God in every area of your life? Like, I am submitted to the rule of God in most parts of my life, but not my sex life. No, no, I'll run that part of my life. Or I'm, I'm submitted to the rule of God in most areas of my life, but not my finances. I'll run this area of my life. Thank you, just the same, Jesus. Don't call me. I'll call you if I need something. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I'm trying to tell you this because we live at a time of divided loyalties. We all fly multiple flags. Which flag are you flying first? See, for the problem for a lot of us, we're flying the Jesus flag second. We're flying the Jesus flag third. And I'm convinced the last two years has really revealed which flag you're flying. Like, uh, metaphorically speaking, I'll fly this flag Like, you know, I'm a Kansas City kid. I'm a Kansas City native. I remember the 1980s when the Chiefs were horrible, and you could go to the Chiefs game, and you could sit anywhere you wanted to. I mean, there's the Chiefs kingdom. And uh, we're an NFL town. We love our Chiefs. It's okay. You can admit you love the Chiefs. It's okay. It's not a sin to love your team. Stand by your team. My question would simply be this. Why do you study Mahomes more than you study the Messiah? Why do we get more excited when the Chiefs win than when Jesus wins? I mean, seriously, why are we more excited about the Chiefs team than being a member of the Jesus team? Like, we're better evangelists for our sports team than we are for the gospel. That's the only thing I feel. I've heard this before. Like, I, I, I was raised in youth group. I, I, I heard this in, you know, when I was a teenager. Okay, then why hasn't it changed? I mean, you've heard this before. Then, then why is everything still the same? Now, it's okay if, if you fly your flag. Stand by your team. Like, I'm part of the Chiefs kingdom. I'm part of the Jayhawk nation. National champions again. Rock, chalk, 
Jayhawk. See, we even have our worship liturgy. We got our worship chants. But the real question is why are we more passionate about flying these flags than we are the Jesus flag? Really, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now, just because I love my Mizzou friends, and I really do, I brought a flag for you too. <laughs> We're just having fun, okay? We're just trying to have some fun. I still don't want to play in football, okay? I, I still don't want to. Here's what I want you to see. We all fly different flags which flag are you flying? Which flag is number one in your life? Of all the flags you fly, is it the Jesus flag? Are you under his authority? Are you submitted to the rule of God in your life? Seriously? You know if you're seeking first the kingdom of God, and that is your priority by how you use your money, how you use your ability, how you use your energy. If Jesus gets the leftovers, then you know you're not flying the Jesus flag first. Hey, for some of us, this is the most important flag we fly right here. Now, this flag is important. I fly this flag in front of my house 24-7, 365. I really do. This is Memorial Day weekend. I think right now we need to show our appreciation for all the veterans among us. Thank you for serving so that we can enjoy as Americans freedom and liberty to worship among many others, and that didn't come cheaply. Memorial Day weekend is a reminder that our freedom is very costly, but listen very carefully. For many of us, this flag is our first priority. We see ourselves as American citizens even before we see ourselves as kingdom citizens. And while I am an American citizen, I'm first and foremost a kingdom citizen, a member of heaven. And I'll tell you why this matters, because for a lot of us, we think the church's role is to save America. No, the church's role is not to save America, it's to save Americans. And when we start taking Jesus and the gospel to Americans, maybe it will change America. You see, we have turned this thing around where we've forgotten the call on our life as Christians and the call of God upon the church to understand our first priority. Do you understand that we have been trained by our society to think politically when we're supposed to be thinking biblically? For some of us, our true religion is Democrat. For others, our true religion is Republican. No, we're called to think biblically, not left or right, but rather up or down. Listen very carefully. I care deeply about the poor. It's revealed in how we use our energy, our money, and a lot of our ministries is to the poor in our city and around the world, what some call the marginalized or the forgotten, what Jesus called the least of these. The fact that I care about the poor does not make me a Democrat. It makes me a Christian. It has nothing to do with being an American. I care very deeply about the sanctity of human life. Yes, I am pro-life to the core. You know why? Because God sees the unborn as fully human even before their bodies are fully formed. Psalm 139, the fact that I am pro-life does not make me a Republican, makes me a Christian. Because I'm first and foremost 
flying the Jesus flag. Now, a lot of you may not know what this is, but if you went to Awana or Royal Ambassadors or any number of other children's Sunday school programs, this is the Christian flag. Now, listen, I'm not saying you literally have to fly this flag in front of your home. It's a metaphor. But this ought to be what defines you. Not your nationality, not your ethnicity. That is not your number one identity. See, I'm not simply an American Christian, a white Christian, black Christian, Asian Christian. I'm, in a, I'm a Christian first that defines everything else. So the question is, are you under this flag? Yeah, you fly a lot of flags, but are you under this flag? See, to seek first the kingdom of God has to do with how you treat your wife, the way you love her, the way you serve her, the way you're laying down your life for her. Is your, is your family under the flag? How you spend your money, how you spend your time, how you leverage your opportunities, your abilities, your energy. Is it under this flag? Are you submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ in your life? Every other king will fall. Every other kingdom will crumble. But there is one that's gonna last forever. Then the kingdom and dominion of the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey him. This is how Daniel 7 ends. Every other kingdom of men will submit to him, King Jesus, to serve and obey him. Philippians chapter 2. God has highly exalted him and given him a name above every name that is named in heaven and upon earth and under the earth that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You alone are Lord, Jesus. He is the only one. Maranatha, our Lord comes. All these other prophecies we can prove have been fulfilled literally. What do you think that says about the remaining ones? I like my odds. I like my odds. Several years ago, walking through Crystal Bridges Art Museum, Bentonville, Arkansas, they say a picture says a thousand words. This one stopped me in my tracks. It's a mural on a wall. It's enormous. And I don't know if you can see it, but what you have here is a mountain, a pile of rubble and ruin. All the kingdoms of this world that have fallen. You look closely, you can see the pharaohs. If you were living about 2500 BC in the middle of an Egyptian dynasty, you could never have fathomed the world without Egypt and their world dominance. They came and went. If you look closely, you can see Julius Caesar here. You could never have fathomed or imagined had you lived at the time of the Roman Empire. It is 225 AD. You could never have imagined how Rome could ever fall. They did. If you look closely, you'll see Joseph Stalin. If you were living in 1942 behind the Iron Curtain in Russia, you can never fathom how there could not be the Soviet Union, but it crumbled 1991. Every kingdom comes and goes. Every kingdom eventually falls. Look carefully. 
you can see here Thomas Jefferson, George Washington. That's right. The day will come. This land that we love, the United States, the star has risen, and one day it will fall. The kingdoms of this world will end in a mountain of rubble and ruin, but only the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ will last forever, which means if you're living for anything other than Jesus, you're living a life that will not have mattered because the things you live for were not forever. Jesus, I pray for every person right now under the sound of my voice that before we lay our head on the pillow one more night, we will settle this issue in our life. Who has a right to rule our life? That I will submit to the kingdom of God in every part of my life. I will live to advance your name, your fame. I will live to take the gospel to the nations, beginning with my neighbors. And God, I pray that you'd raise up an end times army with sold out, spirit filled, fully surrendered followers of Jesus Christ to take the light of God into the darkness of our day. A city set on a hill that cannot be hid. I pray blessing God over everyone under the sound of my voice that your grace and your face would shine upon them. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you give Jesus the glory with me today? Praise him, church. Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure and subscribe and share with a friend. We hope today's message inspired and challenged you. Let's go be living proof of a loving God to a watching world. For more information about Abundant Life, visit livingproof.co or follow us on social media at Abundant Life LS.